Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. A quick note about the foundation. We're working on our anxiety and depression uh, massive literature overview. So the goal here is to go through 5,000 plus uh, lectures, peer-reviewed papers, videos, etc., and condense it all. Uh, into a resource, low cost or no cost for people suffering or people that know people that suffer from anxiety and depression. So to find out more about the project, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today my guest is uh, Professor Nick Overlees. He's a distinguished professor of chemistry at University of North Carolina in Greensboro. And we're going to talk about uh, fungi and bioactive compounds associated with them. So Nick, thank you for coming. My great pleasure. Yeah, tell me a bit about your interest in fungi and uh, how long you've been studying them and you know, a bit about your background. Sure. So my background is in what I would call natural products chemistry. The technical term for it is pharmacognosy, which basically means that we're the guys who go out in nature and try to discover compounds that either could become drugs or are the ideas for new drugs. And the statistic I like to tell people is that if you walk into a pharmacy anywhere in the United States and uh, look at the medicines either behind the counter or over the counter, about 25% of them at least are derived from nature in some way. And I'm not talking about herbal remedies here. I'm talking about like antibiotics, pain medications, aspirin is derived from a natural product. And if you get into the anti-cancer and anti-infective space, which is where I do a lot of my research, it's more like 65%. So if, if you've got, if you're being treated for cancer at all, there's a more than six chances in 10 that you're being treated with a natural product or something that was derived therefrom. So that's what we're okay. trying to do. Question about uh, these natural products. It seems like, I guess, because of patent law that uh, companies go in and let's say a plant makes, I don't know, 12 different kinds of, you know, a terpene or something. It seems like they'll try to find one that may affect the condition they're looking at, let's say cancer, and then the rest they don't incorporate. Meanwhile, if you actually have the regular plant medicine, 
you'll get all these, you know, dozens and hundreds of ancillary compounds. What's your thought on, you know, the stripping down and the laying bare of one or two substances for drugs versus uh, maybe a more natural way to do it and have like the whole fungi, the whole plant as your medicine? Well, I think it, it depends on what your end goal is. I think if your end goal is something acute, like you have cancer, which means you've got cells in your body that are dividing at a way that they should not be and are overtaking your body. I believe that the approach of using something that's going to target it in a very specific fashion, you probably want to go after one compound as opposed to a mixture. And that, that doesn't have to do, that doesn't mean the mixture is necessarily wrong, but you have to ask yourself, how are you going to deliver that mixture, right? Whereas if they're analyzing one compound, they're going to figure out how to put it in some sort of vehicle, often called an excipient, so that it can be delivered to you either orally or in, the, in your veins, which you can't really do with a mixture, like a multi-component mixture in that same sort of way. So I, w- I would, s- now that, that is to contrast, I noticed that you were advertising for what you guys are studying on anxiety. I mean, I think in the realm of herbal remedies, there's plenty of evidence that these multi-component mixtures work for different things. If you look at a lot of that herbal remedies literature, it's mostly not for like an acute condition. It's not for cancer where you're going to die in a few months if you don't have a treatment. It's more for something like anxiety, you know, where you, like somebody once said to me, anxiety is like always having your foot on the gas of a car and you you want something to sort of take the foot off the gas, right? Are Um, you saying that uh, herbal remedies are more for chronic conditions versus acute and acute is where you need to strip down to one compound, let's say? I would say as a typical scientist, it's hard to like sort of narrow me into one answer like that, but I would say, yeah, I would be sort of in that direction of that answer that in a chronic condition, maybe an herbal remedy's got a better, better shot than an acute condition. Yeah. I've noticed um, I've taken various drugs for things and I've also done some herbal remedies. Um, herbal stuff seems to be a lot softer. You know, drugs are more like a punch, like, you know, and some of the, the effects that you come down from them off of can be, you know, they seem to have more withdrawal effects than let's say an herbal remedy. I know I'm generalizing, but yeah, it's just a generic difference I've seen between the two. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, and if you had cancer, like if, you know, if you had, I mean, you're, you're a man, but let's say you were a woman and you had ovarian cancer, you know, you could die in a few months if they didn't hook you up to an IV and, and fill your veins up with some of these acute drugs. And the side effects are, t- are bad. I mean, I know first, my own mother has been treated with some of these. And so I know firsthand there are very bad side effects. That being said, if she didn't have the treatments, she would have died in a couple months, right? And so you, you have to weigh sort of the pros and cons of that. Well, tell me, so tell me about some of these compounds. You you focused more on fungi or are you working on plants as well? And yeah, we, so in, in the fungi world, like what's, what's interesting and unique about it medicinally? Yeah. So a lot of the research in my group is focused on anti-cancer drug discovery from fungi. And when we say fungi, I think one of the mis- common misconceptions is everyone thinks, oh, you must mean mushrooms. And, and I don't mean mushrooms. It's not that I don't like mushrooms, but the fung- fungi can be divided into many different sort of sub categories. And mushrooms are typically what are called basidiomycetes. And we're looking at organisms that are most commonly referred to as ascomycetes. Ascomycetes are what penicillium is, and penicillium is what led to penicillin, if you just want to put all that in perspective. So what is is ascomycetes like the hyphae or the mycelium of the mushrooms? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'd have to, I'd have to get my mycology colleague to give you the, the hardcore details, but a basidiomycete has like a mushroom fruiting body, just like you see, you know, when you go to the grocery store, that's the part of the mushroom that is, that is disseminating the spores so that the organism can grow on for generation and generation. Ascomycetes do it slightly differently. That's kind of a, 
how I would subdivide them in kind of a, a layman sense. But but the, the bigger point is that we can grow them in the laboratory quite effectively. We can grow them in Petri dishes. We can grow them on different substrates. And what my lab does routinely is grow a whole bunch of those, uh, hundreds and hundreds a year, and routinely screen them against biological targets. So see, can we kill cancer cells? Can we kill the malaria parasite? Can we kill a bacterium? For ease of use, though, do you use the entire fungi first? And then if it works, then you strip out what you yep. think was the particular compound that worked? Exactly. Yes, you're spot on. We, we make an initial extract, which would be that multi-component mixture that you were talking about of probably dozens, if not scores of compounds. And then when we find one that's active, meaning it kills the cancer cell, we will then... It's what's called bioactivity-directed fractionation. We do a series of experiments to strip down or strip out those that are not potent and focus on the ones that are potent for the biological activity. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700-plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. How often do you start with the initial mixture of compounds? And then when you try to isolate it out, isolate out a compound or two, it doesn't work. Are there situations where only the original fungi will work with all the ancillary compounds? There are certainly situations where it happens, but it's not very common. I would say it's more common that we can get it down to one or a handful of compounds, which is a misconception. You know, a lot of people ask me that. The question you just asked a lot of people ask that question. A lot of people think, yeah, but shouldn't that mixture have some sort of properties? Maybe it does this. Maybe it does that. What I have found over the years is that if you've got one that, again, we're looking at a very acute thing too. We're not trying to kill a cancer cell, very defined endpoint. And so uh, we find that usually there is a suite of compounds. They're usually structure related, all almost look alike that will target that, that receptor, if you will, and will kill the cancer cell. Do you notice any difference? Uh, in the, in, you know, before you strip out the bioactive compounds, if you leave them all in and you do a, an experiment side by side of the stripped down version versus the one with everything in it, have you done that? And if so, what's noticed? We've certainly done that experiment. What we find is as we strip it out so that it's more concentrated in the compounds that are killing the cancer cells, that the potency will go up on a per milligram beta. So if the activity was X, at the extract level, it'll be even more potent as you start to strip it out. Does that make sense? So in other words, we're concentrating yep. biological activity. But what about, are there any trade-offs? Are there any side effects when you whittle down to one or two compounds or it's just more potent? And it's I imagine that there are side effects, but our experiments are almost always in Petri dishes and cell culture plates. So we're not putting them in uh, animal models and human beings very often. We only do that with the best leads as we go along. So yeah, we see side effects for sure. The um, the path of a compound. So you it may start out in a fungi. You test it, let's say side by side. You start stripping away compounds. Eventually, you get down to let's say one or two. And then what's the path? Do you go to animal models or do you, do you use organoids? Yeah, I would say all of the above. As we try to advance a compound, we'll do a couple things. One of which is 
we, we've got to determine the structure of the molecule. So that that's actually a big part of our business is not only stripping out so that we get to the most active, but then figuring out how is that molecule put together? Like people who are familiar with the periodic table, how are all those atoms put together and, and what's the architecture of that molecule? Once we figure that out, one of our major things we often think about is, is how can we patent it? It turns out in the United States, you cannot patent, or I should say it's extremely difficult to patent the, the compound from nature. People will argue that it's, it's already out there. You can't compound something from nature. And so we are often trying to tweak the molecules slightly uh, so that we can develop a patent position. And while we're doing that, it's not just for the sake of patenting. It is also to perhaps enhance uh, some property. Maybe it's got really poor solubility. Oftentimes, natural products have very poor solubility in the kind of um, solutions you would want to put it into if you're going to swallow it as a pill or inject it in your veins. So we've got to optimize that might want to optimize the half-life, meaning how long it circulates in the body. So we're always kind of tweaking the molecule a little bit. And in that process, continually testing. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Certainly we'll test things against spheroids and and other types of uh, in vitro assays, but eventually we're going to go to a mouse model. And the goal is, can we, we give the mouse cancer and we have some that are treated and some that are not. It is our goal that the ones that are treated live longer than the ones that are not and do so in a way where they're not sick and losing weight and all of those things that we're actually treating the cancer, but not, not killing the, uh, the patient, if you will, at the same time. So how are these mushrooms used? Are they used as an adjunct to chemo or in place of chemo or how are they used ideally? I would say that once the, the compound, that, once we've isolated a compound, I would say our goal is to use it as a complement to chemotherapy. So if you were being, again, treated for chemotherapy for ovarian cancer, there's two or three key compounds that you would be treated with. It is our hope that ours would then be the fourth or the fifth compound in that, in that mix. And that is because people, you know, even if they're treated successfully in chemotherapy, drug resistance develops. And so oftentimes we're trying to discover a molecule that might kill a cancer cell in a way people had not anticipated previously. So that's called a mechanism of action. So if we have a new mechanism of action, the cancer might be developing a way to sort of get around whatever the drug is that they're currently being treated. If we can come up with a new way to kill the cancer cell, maybe we can kill it before it has a way to develop what's called drug resistance. Well, again, so you're using these with existing chemo or are these used sometimes in isolation instead of chemo? I mean, I appreciate your question. We've never gotten something all the way to a human being, so I can't answer that. But my mm, guess okay. would be that we would use it in a, as a complement. It's really hard to convince, you know, if you're going to go out to the clinicians of the world and they've been treating people using a certain series of compounds, it's really hard to convince them to stop using those. You know, you, you, if Mrs. Johnson is being successfully treated with compound X, it's hard to say stop using compound X. So instead, you might say Mrs. Johnson might even do better if you give her X and Y, our compound being Y. That would be our hope. So you say you haven't yet gotten into humans. What, what are the big hurdles? Is, are you, is it in the lab model and the Petri dish where things are falling apart? Or is it in the spheroids or the organoids or the mouse model? Like where are a lot of the drugs falling out? There's a lot of people talk about in drug discovery that there's kind of this valley of death, that you have some great preliminary data in the early stages, and you can do a lot of things to a mouse. And how you get it from a mouse to a human being can take millions of dollars and a lot of time. So I wouldn't say we've had anything that that we've given up on. We just continually keep trying to work towards it. So we've got to figure out, as I said, a better way to deliver it, a way to figure out how to get it into the organism, be it a mouse or a dog or a human, 
effectively. Sometimes with natural products, one of the problems could be supply. You know, you're getting something from nature, maybe the, to solve the structure of something, to isolate a molecule, as you said, strip it out and solve the structure. We need less than a milligram, less than what would be at the tip of a spoon. If you tipped it like a spoon into like a big bowl of sugar, you don't need very much. But then if you're going to treat humans and do a whole bunch of humans, you might need kilogram quantities, right? So figuring out how you scale something up in the supply could be an issue. Finding somebody to invest in these studies can always be an issue. Typically, we're going to the United States government with grants. You don't win every grant that you write. So there's certainly a lot of hurdles out there, man. I mean, I could go on and on with hurdles. I I like to sort of think of the glass half full. and I'm just always moving forward. How do you do the initial selection of the fungi? Are there any environmental cues like this fungi grows you know only in cool dark environments and so you know i don't know if it'll translate to people or this one comes after a fire and you know therefore maybe it could withstand the heat of the body or this one's in a low ph soil is there any of that initial selection yeah those are great questions and the answer is we we do a little bit of all of that on the one hand we sort of take an approach of well let me back up a second it turns out Fungi are probably the second most diverse organisms on the planet, the most diverse being the insects. And people estimate that there's somewhere between one and a half and four and a half million fungi in the world. And less than 10% of those have been named, just given a name. Okay. So you've, you've got a 90% chance of perhaps discovering a new fungus. So if you go with that theory, what we're often trying to do is uncover new biological diversity. Just like you said, go somewhere unique and collect samples. And our hope is that new biological diversity will lead us to new chemical diversity, meaning unique compounds. So where do we collect? We have a particular interest in fungi from aquatic environments. It turns out they're very understudied. In particular, freshwater fungi are highly understudied. And uh, one of my colleagues often jokes that where's there, where there are fish, there are fungi. So we go to like state parks. We get permission, but we go to state parks and we will collect samples from streams and rivers and uh, lakes and things like that. So we go to state parks because typically those are, are not polluted or certainly less polluted than if you collected somewhere in a city. But we've also collected samples on campus, you know, UNCG's campus where I'm at, collected them in people's backyards. I mean, it's amazing where we can discover new fungi. And when I say new, I don't just mean new genus and species. I mean, like, I'm talking about like new families and new orders of fungi up the tree of life, if you will. The other thing we do is just randomly go through them. We have a colleague who has a library of more than 50,000 fungi from around the world, and 50,000 is a lot to study. So we just randomly collect, I mean, uh, pull things out of his library of fungi and test them. Um, so there's a little bit of random just going for it. Uh, there's, a, there's a little bit of strategically going to certain environments. To, to, to one of your questions you asked, though, you, you said like, you know, do you go someplace with a real extreme environment. We know people who, uh, who collect samples in like former mine pits, you know, places where there's been like copper mining and where the pH has been all messed up down there. And it's amazing. Life goes on. You can find fungi growing in those really crazy places, places where you couldn't go as a human and live very well. You can find fungi. So that is a strategy that some people pursue as well. Yeah. yeah. Is, is, so is there a correlation, you know, like uh, fungi that come from very wet dark environments, do they have particular characteristics versus ones that come from hot environments and say, or dry? I think the answer is, yeah, there probably are correlations. We've never done the study to say, is there a correlation between that and our ability to find something that's got good potential from drug discovery, which is what we're always thinking about. So, 
I mean, what are some of the themes or tropisms or predilections that you see amongst the fungi you study? Or is it just so varied that each one's a totally different universe? The answer to that is a little bit of both. I would say that one of the interesting things we find, a theme, okay, here's a theme that we find. We're often trying to discover new chemistry, meaning, you know, there's only so, so many metabolites that have been discovered from fungi, compounds. And people who've done this work in the past have often worked on fungi that grow well in the laboratory, not surprisingly. So, you know, mold grows really well on the bread, you know, even in the back of your refrigerator, right? That's that's a form of fungus. So what we have found is that sometimes fungi that are a little difficult to grow, maybe they grow slowly, maybe they need some certain things added to the media that helps them grow in the laboratory. Sometimes those give us some of our best hits, uh, some of our best structural leads. So we almost will take an approach of kind of weeding out the fungi that grow almost too easily which would be things like penicillium, aspergillus, things that most people have heard of, and instead try to focus on things you've never heard of before. And we can kind of tell that under a microscope when we first get started what these, you know, what these fungi are or what they are not. And yeah, so maybe the harder they are to work in the laboratory, maybe that gives you a better chemistry lead if I had to come up with a theme. What kind of characteristics are you looking for in the compounds themselves? Yeah, the compounds, first of all, they've got to be potent. They've got to kill the cancer cell or they've got to kill the malarium malaria parasite really well, meaning uh, sub-micromolar levels. I would say structurally, we're typically looking for things that might have a molecular weight that's not too large and not too small. There's kind of this Goldilocks paradigm that like somewhere in the middle range is good. We might be looking for something that has a structure that no one has ever seen before. That would be called a novel chemotype. Our our theory being that a novel chemotype might interact with a, a receptor or an enzyme in a novel way. We also look for things that, well, one of the experiments we, we often do when we first get started on a, uh, a new metabolize, we might figure out, can we trick the fungus into making a lot of it? Do we have to stress the fungus? Like, for instance, we just had a fungus, we published this about a year ago, where it probably made about 10 milligrams of a compound, so not very much, but we could get 20 times that amount if we grew it under a, a uh, LED light. The, the entire time. So we kind of stressed the fungus by growing it under lights for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That was kind of neat. That was kind of a, you know, to, to make more compound. What kind of compounds, I guess, is what I was at after, um, you know, their esters or aldehydes or their, oh, I see. you know, particular types of structures that, you know, fungi seem to produce in abundance that other, you know, animals don't or other plants don't that seem to be useful. We run across esters quite often. We don't run across aldehydes very often. We occasionally run across carboxylic acids. It sort of depends on the fungus. Sometimes we find compounds that are built up of amino acids. So they're, people will say they're sort of derived from a certain pathway, or we'll find compounds that are of mixed biosynthesis, meaning they're partially a polyketide, partially amino acids, maybe partially a terpene. Yeah, we like things like that. The amino acid ones um... are cool, but sometimes the amino acid ones get too big. Like they might be a very large molecular weight, which make it might make it hard to make it druggable. I see what you mean. What about the method of how it kills the cancer? Uh, do fungi tend to have you know compounds that you know lice cancer cells, or do they tend to work in an immune you know boosting sense? Like what's uh, what's the flavor or, or method of action of the compounds that you're isolating? Well, in an ideal scenario. In an ideal scenario, we always collaborate with people to do the biology. The ideal scenario is I would love for the biologist to call me up and say, man, this thing is killing the heck out of our cancer cells, and I have no idea why. That means it could potentially have a new mechanism of action. 
we don't typically see things that lyse cells very often or the way the assays are set up, they're not for the immune system, as you asked. But um, what we want to find are things that maybe target the replication of the cancer cells, something that targets the formation of the spindle or the DNA or what's called apoptosis, things like that. I, you know, it's funny. I'm not, I'm not really a pharmacologist. So it's hard for me to give you all the alphabet soup of their, their terminology. Pharmacologists have all kinds of vernacular they want to use, but if they cannot, they, they can sort of rule out what it's doing. And if they can't, if they can't say it's doing these, you know, let's say five or six main things, then maybe it's doing something quite unique. And that could be important for us. That could be very important. So we're often uh, moving, moving things up the priority list if they kill a cancer cell in a way no one would predict. Are there any off-target effects that are desirable you've found so far? Nothing that I can exactly think of. You know, we'd have to test in a whole organism to see an off-target effect. So if we tested it in a mouse and they've suddenly got taller, you know, we'd be excited by that. But the mice usually, when you give them cancer, they don't live long enough for that. But if, you know, if the mice are not significant, you know, the, the problem with a typical cancer drug is my boss in graduate school used to say that pharmacology and toxicology are the same thing. They differ by dose. Right. And that, you know, when you give somebody a cancer drug, people are sick for a reason. I mean, it's effectively poison and you're trying to poison the cancer before you poison the patient. So if we give it to a mouse and that mouse does not lose a lot of weight, does not seem sick all the time, does not seem like they're laying in the cage, licking a wound the whole time, that's probably a good thing. So that would be an, an off target effect that I think would be, we would find beneficial, meaning they're just kind of going about their day. That would imply that it's somehow killing the cancer cell but not killing the patient, if you will. Method of administration, do you ever make um, something that you would put onto the skin for a skin cancer or is it always by injection? Is it always by IV? Is it always by yeah. on mice? It wouldn't be pill, but food, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. The answer is yes, we do. We, know, we haven't tried specifically for the skin, but what we have tried to do is we collaborate with people who are experts in kind of uh, material science and they've come up with materials that you could for instance, staple into a wound. So if let's say you had lung cancer, one of the things they would do in lung cancer is remove the cancerous part of your lung. They would remove as much of it as possible without killing you. Well, they're going to have to then sew you back up. And the, the risk would be that there might be a little bit of cancer left behind. And would that cancer come back? One of the things we've experimented with is something called a buttress that they could sew in while they're suturing you up right there into your lungs that might slowly leak out a cancer drug into that area. So if there was any little bit of microscopic tumor left behind because the, the surgeon couldn't see it or the surgeon didn't want to cut out that much of your lung, if that could just sort of leak out very slowly, maybe we could kill the cancer, deliver it right to where those cancer cells are without having a bunch of um, drug delivered to the entire body. I'm actually quite intrigued with this approach in any sort of cancer where surgery might also be involved. Like for instance, ovarian cancer. First thing they're going to do is go in there and try to remove as much as possible. Pancreatic cancer, first thing they're going to do is go do surgery and try to remove it. Could we install something there and sort of leave it behind, almost like a little time capsule that would slowly leak out drug? The trick to well, that I've is seen like, like radioactive seeds, you yeah. know, in the old days for certain cancers. So maybe it would be somewhat similar to that. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a very good analogy. Yeah. The trick is figuring out how do you tune it. But um, yeah, it's certainly an approach that I think is worth examining. Maybe it's sort of almost on the frontiers of some ideas we could have with drug delivery. Because you're right, like, you know, putting it in a vein and putting it or swallowing it are, you know, two other ways we could deliver it. And, and those have those own, their own problems. A lot of times, if you have to make something in, in a way that somebody has to swallow it, you're, you're going to lose a lot of it through the stomach and the intense intestines. You're just throwing it away. 
in the veins, you might be having something that could have problems with your liver or other parts of your body. So, you know, if you could deliver it in a very localized way, that could be beneficial. So certainly something we think about. Yeah, because I'm seeing it start in a fungi with all these ancillary compounds. And I would guess the method would typically be ingestion if an animal or person eats it. You know, and not only are we stripping out a lot of the compounds to find just the one or two that, you know, let's say are patentable or tweakable, but then the method of administration is also kind of alien too. So I just wonder if you can approximate what may happen in nature, if that would, you know, work better. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. You know, that's a, we, we often get that kind of question about any kind of natural product, whether it's from a plant or a bacterium or a fungus or a sea creature, you know, can you figure out how nature is using it and then apply it? to whatever purpose you have in, in life, whether it's agriculture or medicine. And, you know, the fact of the matter is we don't really know why a fungus is making a compound. I mean, you know, you can predict, like in the case of penicillin, probably fungi need to fight off bacteria, right, just in the environment. So maybe that makes sense. Uh, with antifungals, you could sort of predict, well, fungi might have to fight other fungi for the same little piece of turf. When it comes to something like anti-cancer, uh, I don't think a fungus is going to make a compound so that a human can fight its cancer, right? So figuring out what it does in that sense is a little tricky. But there, I will say that there is sometimes overlap between what has antifungal properties and what has anti-cancer properties, maybe because both fungi and, and, and mammals are, are eukaryotes. So that is something we kind of think about. So what's um, anything promising that you can talk about that, uh, that you're working on? Anything in the next year or two or three you think will be a breakthrough? I'm a very superstitious guy, so I, I wouldn't tell you we've got something that's going to be a breakthrough. But what I will tell you is that I would say if, if you would say, what, what is the thing that we do in our lab that we sort of pride ourselves on? It is being able to scale things up to a level that other people could test it. I think in maybe one of the misconceptions of science is that you know a scientist sits in his lab or her lab and just works on something for their entire life and then tells the world about it. And in truth, science is like a big, team sport, you know, I play soccer. And so I always think about, you know, you need a goalie and you also need somebody who can score goals. You need a defender and you need somebody in the midfield who can dribble the ball around. You know, it's, it's that way with research projects, but with, with a natural product, again, if you, if you only have a very, very small amount of it, there's not a whole lot of things other people can do. So we are often trying to figure out how can we get as much material as possible into the hands of as many different scientists as possible. People who know something about- I guess you can call this the- uh... The milligram to kilogram problem. Yes. Hey, yes, exactly. Yeah. How can we get into the hands of people who want to do synthesis? How can we get into the hands of people who want to figure out how to deliver it? Like you were asking about delivering it locally. How can we get into the hands of people who want to figure out the mode of action? So I often figure, I, I sort of think of us like an octopus, you know, with like eight arms out there. And every one of those arms is some collaborator who's trying to work on some other aspect of the, uh, of the drug discovery pipeline. And we're just always trying to feed them and try to learn from them. Like, you know, one person might love the fact that we made it more water soluble. Somebody else might say that is, that could be a problem. And so we got to sort of come to some sort of middle ground. So it's very, very collaborative science, extremely collaborative. Even on the, even on the side of like getting material to work on, no matter what sort of natural products chemistry you work on, you probably need a collaborator who, for instance, in my case, is an expert in mycology, an expert in fungi. Or if I was working on plants, I need an expert in botany. Or if I was working on coral, I need an expert in coral, right? To help me with just getting the samples and identifying the samples and getting access to the samples. 
if I was collecting marine, well, some people, I've got colleagues who collect like marine sediments. Okay. So you've got to get bacteria out of the sediment. That's like a mile down at the bottom of the ocean. Well, you need somebody to get you out there to get that sample, you know, before you can do anything in the laboratory. So extremely, extremely, extremely collaborative is what I would say about natural product sciences. And I guess some of these substances, if they're hard to get, again, someone like you would come into play where if you could scale it up to have, you know, unless something's a mile deep and it's very hard to get to, it'd be very expensive and require a lot of expertise to get to it even once. Yep. So if you can amplify the samples brought back and have plenty of it to work on, that would solve a lot of problems for a lot of people that want to absolutely. look at Absolutely. Yep. You're absolutely right. In fact, I like the fact you use their term amplify. I say that to the students all the time. Like we want to amplify the supply, like turn it up, man, turn up the volume. Let's get a lot more of it. So more people can hear about it. Well, very good. Well, Nick, it sounds like, uh, I don't know, you're working on like a massively expansive problem with so many moving parts that it's, it's, I don't know, it's just hard to, to really characterize it. So I guess you're, I don't know, you're kind of a kid in the candy store with all this stuff, but there's, there's just infinite amounts to do is what the feeling I'm getting is. Yeah, that's a, I mean, I, yeah, I think about that. I mean, I've been doing this for about 25 years of my career and, uh, you know, there's many times where I say to myself, it seems like there's more things I don't know than I do know. So, I mean, maybe it's like that for all scientists, but I will say, you know, compare the, one of the things I love about fungi is, is kind of that biology side that like almost everywhere we look, we discover new fungi. So that, that's kind of cool. I grew up as a kid reading the National Geographic. I've always, always been intrigued by like, you know, who's the first to climb that mountain? Who's the first to discover this mammal? Who's the first to go see this cave? You know, so who's the first to go work on this fungus? You know, it's kind of what we do. I would also say that on the chemistry side, we're, we love the fact that we can not only discover new chemistry, but then man, I guess manipulate these organisms in the laboratory so that they can produce more of it, as you said, to amplify the supply. So I like being able to get things up to that kilogram scale. I, to be perfectly honest, we get it more to the gram scale, but if you add up enough grams, you get to kilograms. So right, do our right, best gotcha. with that. Well, very good. Well, Nick, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Oh, I would say on our website. Um, so my, if you just type in my last name, Oberlies, O-B-E-R-L-I-E-S, and uh, UNCG, I'm the only Oberlies here. You'll find my website, and we have a list of all of our publications. I, I update it all the time. And even if, you know, if, even if you're not – if you're more of an amateur scientist, you should be able to look at the titles and the abstracts and sort of get an idea of what we're doing in the laboratory. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Nick, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's very interesting what you're working on. Thank you. It's my great pleasure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.